Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Today we're in the second week of a series on the book of Job. If you missed last week, uh, you can catch uh, that sermon on podcast. Uh, and here's, what we're, here's our approach to Job. Job is uh, 42 chapters long, and, so, and we've only got four weeks. Uh, so instead of kind of trying to cover nine to ten chapters every week, we're looking at the book thematically rather than chronologically, uh, which means this morning we're going to be uh, in Job chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and we'll start at the right at the beginning. Uh, last week was, uh, we kind of looked thematically and began in chapter 2, but we're going to start in chapter 1 today. Uh, and so... Uh, th- I'm going to read a number of passages from Job today because we're going to try to get a kind of whole scope, a scope of the whole book. Uh, but this will be our principal uh, text for this morning. So Job chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, uh, and in fact ending at verse 1. So one verse, here we go. Don't blink or you'll miss it. Uh, so Job 1.1, 1, 1, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the first verse of Job, we learn some important information about him. In fact, we learn six things. We learn his name is Job. We learn that he is from Uz, Uz, Oz, whatever floats your boat. They're all correct, okay? Uh, So we learn his name, we learn where he's from, we learn that he is blameless, full of integrity, fears God, and turns away from evil. That's a pretty radical description, right? Some of you are like, I wish that could be said of me. (laughs) It's clear that the author of the book of Job wants us to know that Job is blameless before we ever read the story that is about to unfold. In fact, three times in the first two chapters, we are told that Job is blameless. One one time by the narrator, in which we just read, and then two times by God himself as he interacts with the accuser, Hasatan, the Satan. So in the first two chapters, three times we're told that Job is blameless. And as we look at the book of Job, here's the challenge. The challenge of the reader of Job is can we hold on to what God says about Job? Can we hold on to the fact that Job is blameless? Most readers cannot hold on to this fact. Most preachers cannot hold on to this. Almost always when we have a a conversation about the book of Job, we are going and we're looking to see what did Job do wrong that has caused his suffering. But right from the very get-go, we're told three times that Job is blameless. And the challenge is, can we believe it? And it's very, very difficult to hold on to this as we read throughout the book because eventually we are swayed into believing that Job has done something wrong and therefore deserves the suffering that he endures. And so, what the book of Job does, and I'm handing you a whole theological meal right here at the beginning, okay? Uh, but but the, what the book of Job does is it exposes the satanic practice of blaming the victim. 
What the book of Job does is it exposes the satanic practice of blaming the victim. Now, if you think I'm using that term too loosely, some of you are like, (laughs) you know, like you're getting nervous because he said satanic, right? So so here, if you're nervous that I'm using that term too loosely, I promise you I'm not. Okay, the word Satan is the word Hebrew, ha-satan. Definite article ha, and then satan, which literally means the accuser. So in the story of Job, it is the work of the Satan to accuse, to blame, and to shame. And if we will stick with the book to its end, we will discover that the book as a whole exposes the practice of accusing the victim or blaming the, the, blaming the scapegoat, okay? And it is, it is almost an irresistible temptation for the reader uh, to eventually blame the scapegoat, eventually accuse the victim. It's almost an irresistible temptation. And it is one that Jesus, only Jesus, can actually save us from, okay? So that's, that's kind of the framework. Now, let's cover a little bit of ground that we covered last week um, to kind of survey the story and, and get, get going on kind of where things are headed. So in the opening narrative, uh, it sets the plot, right? So the, remember the, the structure of the book is the first two chapters are a narrative that kind of sets up the story. Chapters three through 37 are sophisticated Hebrew poetry in which the friends accuse Job or try to reason out his suffering, try to find, explain his suffering, and then Job responds, and you have that times three cycles. So there's actually 18 speeches of Hebrew poetry, which makes up the big bulk of the book. So in the opening narrative, it sets the plot, and it asks the question, and this is what we looked at last week, it asks the key question, does the world operate according to quid pro quo justice? Now, quid pro quo is a Latin phrase that means this for that. And the first accusation of the accuser in the book of Job is Job only worships you, God, for what he gets out of it. And so the accuser is saying, in fact, anyone, everyone only worships you because of what they get out of it. Uh, That's the only reason they do it. Uh, And so the life of Job or the book of Job is kind of set up to ask that key question, is in fact this how God runs the world? Where good people get good things and bad people get bad things. Uh, Is this what God's justice looks like? Okay, so that's that's kind of the key question that is set up. And then we have the the three waves of Job's suffering, uh, of overwhelming loss. First, he loses all of his wealth. Second, in one fell swoop, he loses all 10 of his children, and then he loses his own health. So he loses his, all of his wealth, all of his children, and his health. Um, and you can kind of like just feel the weight of that, right? Just allow yourself to feel the weight of that loss, and you recognize the, the absolute uh, despair of suffering that Job experienced. When, when you get to the end of chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, says this, in which, by the way, all of my references today will be from the New Living Translation. So in chapter 1, verse 22, it says, In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. In all of this, Job did not blame God. Now, this is really important based on the, the, the context that's already been set up that the accuser goes to accuse and to blame, right? 
And so, so initially, the author wants us to know that despite Job's enormous loss, he has not blamed God. Now, he will find that he will complain to God. We'll find that his faith is very up and down. He's very uncertain. He, ex- he experiences tremendous doubt. We'll find that he, has, he is a real person, right, and has a whole range of emotion. But the author wants us to know that in the end, he doesn't blame God for this. And so after tragedy befalls him, Job did not sin by blaming God. He refuses to play the blame game. So at the end of chapter two, uh, we meet Job's friends, and they're going to play a key part in the story. And Job's friend, and now I mentioned them in passing last week because we needed to kind of get a sense of all that as we wrestled with, is in fact God's justice quid pro quo? Uh, but we, we mentioned them in passing. We'll look at them in detail today. Uh, but Job's friends are this, uh, Eliphaz the Temanite, uh, Bil- Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, okay? So if you're looking for baby names, look no further. Uh, so at first, at first they see Job, this is, this is phenomenal, at first uh, they see Job's suffering and these genuine and these real friends go and sit with Job in silence. And that's all they do. You, you read all of chapter two and you find that upon seeing the suffering of their friend, they go and sit with him in silence. They don't try to explain anything uh, and they just provide Job with the gift of presence in the midst of suffering. To which I would say, at least in chapter two, Job's friends are real friends, genuine friends, who themselves in those moments are embodying the reality of Jesus Christ who suffers with us. They themselves embody Jesus in that moment. Now, of course, they, may not, they won't know that name at this point in the story. They, they don't know what, that, what they're doing, but as we look back and we see uh, that God kind of enters into our mess through the person of Jesus Christ, we recognize that in chapter two, the friends of Job, in their quiet presence in the midst of suffering, are in fact embodying Jesus to Job. Jesus can be found in these friends, at least at this point. And this is real friendship. You know, sometimes the best, thing, the best thing that you can do for someone who is suffering is just to sit with them and in, in provide a non-anxious presence. It's very hard to do. Isn't it true that in the midst of suffering, of someone that we love, a friend, a genuine friend, we all, almost always, the temptation is almost irresistible to go in and try to explain away the suffering. And I would say that the best gift we can often give is to just provide a presence, a non-anxious presence. And when we do that, we embody the, embody the reality that God suffers with us. So I want you to imagine Job has suffered this incredible loss. His friends come in. They sit in silence. And the the scripture says for several days. For several days they just sit in silence. And and just feel the weight of the suffering that Job has endured. Now in chapter 3, 
Job is the first to break the silence, right? The one who is suffering is the first to break the silence. And what we have in Job chapter three is one of the most bitter laments that you will find in all of scripture. Uh, It is Job essentially saying that if this is what life is like, it is simply not worth it. Existence is not worth it if this is what it is like. So Job chapter three, verse three says this, may the day of my birth be erased. Couple, couple verses later, verse five, let that night of my birth be blotted off of the calendar. Verse 11 even, becomes even more bitter. He says this, why wasn't I born dead? Wow. You feel the weight of his suffering and his bitter lament, his honesty before God. He's not blaming God. He's being honest about the disappointment and the pain. And then you get to chapter three, verse 25, which says this. What I feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. And this is commonly where most readers and some preachers will, will actually forget what, Job has, what God has said about Job and turn this into the point of blame. They will say, oh, there you go. Job lived according to fear and not according to faith, and so that's why all this suffering has happened. So the truth is, we're told in chapters one and two, three times that Job is blameless. Most of us cannot get past chapter three before, we find quick, or before we're quick to find a reason for Job's suffering. Oh, there you go. He was fearful. He lived according to fear, not according to faith. And so then we, 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 we go about and we kind of explain his suffering away. And I would just say, let's not be seduced into such a simplistic reading of this story, but rather let's commit to holding on together to what we've been told about Job, which is what? That he is blameless. Job is blameless. I want you to get that, right? Okay. So then in chapter four, we begin the the rounds of debate with Job and his friends. And to set that up, I want to remind you of what we kind of landed on last week. Last week, we landed on this that we are invited to sit in the mystery of our suffering. That we hold on to the truth that God is pure love, that God is fully capable, and yet there is still suffering in our world. We're invited into this tension and to just live with the mystery, to sit with the tension, with the confidence that that what we know Uh, revealed in Jesus Christ is that in the midst of that suffering, God is with us and God suffers with us and God provides a comforting, that that comforting, non-anxious presence to us. And so that's where we ended last week. In other words, apparently the world does not run according to quid pro quo, that God's justice is not as simplistic as good people get good things and bad people get bad things. But here's the thing. If you hold on to a quid pro quo theological system in in a perspective of the world, and then you have an event where where a bad thing has happened to an apparently good person, you have one of two choices. You can either reject the system and say, oh, this must not have been correct, right? My, My theological lens with which I viewed the world is skewed because the reality is, is this good person has experienced suffering, so now I need to adjust my system right? Very hard to do. More likely and more common is rather than adjust the system or abandon the system, we defend the system. 
And if you defend a quid pro quo view of God's justice in the world, you get what you deserve, good people get good things, bad, things get, bad people get bad things, and then you have a situation where a good person experiences bad things or suffering, what do you do? You start sniffing around for hidden sin and accusing. Right? You, get, you follow me? Uh, I know this is, this is like almost half philosophy too, right? Uh, but I think you're with me. You either abandon the system or you defend the system. And if you defend the system, you have to blame the victim because surely they must deserve their suffering. And what we find is, in fact, this is precisely what Job's friends do. Job's friends become uncomfortable with the mystery of it all. They sit for several days providing Job with non-anxious presence. Job provides this bitter lament about the day he was born. And the friends become more and more uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable with the mystery of Job's suffering. And they try to explain it away, and the only way they know to do that is to blame Job. And that's what happens in chapters 3, chapters 4 through 37, is the friends blaming Job. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. You can follow along with me if you want. It will not, these will not be up on the screen, uh, but you can follow along in your Bibles or your devices. It says this. Here are some of the highlights. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied to Job, Will you be patient and let me say a word? <laughs> Come on, you know, like, like all this suffering. And then it's just like, Job has just laid out this bitter lament, and, and Eliphaz has the audacity to say, hey, could I just provide a little bit of perspective? So here he goes. Um, <laughs> for who can keep from speaking out? This is, I'm no longer comfortable with the mystery of this all, right? So who could, spe- who could withhold speaking out? In the past, you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You encouraged those with shaky knees. This all sounds so great. But now when trouble strikes, you lose heart. You are terrified when it touches you. Doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? Stop and think. Do the innocent die? And when have the upright been destroyed? Now, Eliphaz is first. He encourages Job, right? And he says that his life is an encouragement, that Job's life is an encouragement to others. But did you catch the real zinger? When have the upright been destroyed? Do the innocent die? Who has just died in Job's life? The kids. And Eliphaz says, do innocent people die? The implication of Eliphaz to his friend Job is, your children must have been sinful in ways that you didn't know about, and God has acted to enforce justice. Whoa. This, trust me, it's only just beginning. Eliphaz continues into chapter five, two chapters worth of Eliphaz in his first speech here. He says, consider the joy of those corrected by God. 
Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. What is Job? Job is blameless, a man of integrity who avoids evil, right? We're told this three times. And Eliphaz comes in and he says, consider it joy to be corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. Now, listen, if you pluck this out and put it on your fridge, you might be tempted to say a loud amen, right? That there are times in which the Spirit of God moves, corrects, convicts, and kind of moves us into wholeness, moves us into Christ-likeness, and we need these kind of course corrections. And if we want to, we can call those discipline, right? And so Eliphaz, you take his words out and you just pluck them out of context, you might be tempted to say amen, but in context, they're an accusation against Job. In fact, the rest of chapter 5 is this. If you read it, the rest of chapter 5 is all about the protection of God, how things will go well, and and, and how things will be restored, all of this. In chapter 5, if you just pluck out Job chapter 5, it is inspirational, devotional reading. But in context, all these things are an accusation against Job and essentially say to Job, You have obviously sinned, so get your life straight, and all of this will go away. But what is Job? Job is blameless. Now, in in chapter 6, now the structure is, uh, one of the three friends does this, Job replies. The second friend, Job replies. The third friend, Job replies. And you get this ping pong back and forth for most of the book of Job. Okay, so in chapter 6, verse 14, this is Job speaking. He says, at least I can take comfort in this, that despite the pain, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Job, in other words, maintains his innocence and says to Eliphaz, you accuse me without any fear of the Almighty. Then in chapter 8, Bildad weighs in. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, replied to Job, How long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Remember, what what is Job's friend's view of justice? Quid pro quo. Good people get good things, bad people get bad things. Job, will you twist God's justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children have sinned against him, and so their punishment was well-deserved. But if you pray to God and seek the favor of the Almighty, and if you are pure and live with integrity, he will surely rise up and restore your happy home. In other words, Bildad says your children must have sinned. The punishment is well-deserved. So what the previous friend only implied, Bildad makes explicit. It's the theology of universal reciprocity. Ooh, that's fancy. Universal reciprocity. Everybody gets what they deserve. Right? Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and the friends are prepared to call this God's justice. Justice to them is universal reciprocity, when you get what you deserve. Now, after Bildad's big speech, chapter 8, part of of chapter 9, Job speaks, chapter 9, verse 21, I am innocent, but it makes no difference to me, for I despise my life. Man. Now, chapter 11 is Zophar's turn. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Then Zophar the Namathite replied to Job, 
shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? <laughs> In other words, he's like, okay, everybody else got it wrong. I'm the one who has it right, right? Shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent just by a lot of talking? <laughs> Should I remain silent while you babble on? When you mock God, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? You claim my beliefs are pure and I am clean in the sight of God. But if only God would speak, if only he would tell us what he thinks, if only he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom is not a simple matter. Listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. Whoa. God is punishing you far less than you deserve. What we find from the friends is that each accusation gets stronger. First, it is simply implied that Job's kids deserved death. Then the accusa that accusation goes from implication to, made ex to be explicit. Now Job is being directly accused of getting far less than he deserves. And each accusation After each accusation, Job maintains his innocence. Put yourself in Job's place. It's crazy how much he is able to just say, I am innocent before God. And that was just round one. This goes on for two more rounds. Eliphaz. Bildad, Zophar. Each bring an, an increasing accusation and Job maintains his, innocent, his innocence. And the accusations keep escalating until the third round in which the friends of Job are literally just fabricating sins. They're just making stuff up at this point, right? Um, Don't the kids say literally all the time? There's like literally that, like literally that. Well, the friends were like literally making up sins. Uh, so, um, got to stay cool and relevant, right? So Job chapter 22, verses 4 through 11. Uh, this is Eliphaz on the third round of accusations, okay? So Eliphaz says this, verse 4 of chapter 22. Is it because you're so pious that he accuses you and brings judgment against you? No, it's because of your wickedness. There is no limit to your sins. What were we told about Job in chapter 1 and 2? Job is blameless. Eliphaz, there is now no limit to your sins. For example, and then he goes on and lists made up stuff. You have lent money to your friend, demanded clothing as security. Yes, you stripped him to the bone. You must have refused water to the thirsty and food for the hungry. You probably think the land belongs to the powerful and only the privileged have a right to it. You have sent widows away empty-handed and crushed the hopes of orphans. And this is why you are surrounded by traps and you tremble from sudden fears. That is why you cannot see in the darkness and waves of water cover you. Wow. Eliphaz is now convinced that God is accusing Job. 
And he says there are simply no limits to Job's sin. Well, just to get a flavor, Job chapter 31, 16 through 20. This is Job speaking. Have I refused to help the poor? Or have I crushed the hopes of widows? Have I been stingy with my food or refused to share it with orphans? No. From childhood, I have cared for orphans like a father. And all my life, I have cared for widows. And whenever I saw the homeless without clothes and the needy with nothing to wear, did they not praise me for providing wool clothing to keep them warm? Chapter 31 is essentially the end of what we'll hear from Job. Um, We've got a few chapters where there's a fourth personality, Elihu, that's introduced, which we don't actually have time to unpack all of Elihu's stuff in this series. Um, And then beginning in chapter 38, God will speak and provide perspective. So chapter 31 is essentially the last thing we hear from Job, directly. And it's, it's at the end of these bitter, bitter accusations that Job maintains his innocence. I have cared for the poor and the widow. I have given clothing to the naked. I have not put my, he'll go on to say, I have not put my trust in my wealth, and I have never rejoiced when hardship fell on my enemies. All of this begs another central question from the book of Job. And that is this. We never hear from the accuser after chapter two. So the question is, does the accuser leave the story? And the answer is no. Even though we never hear directly from the accuser again, the accuser does not leave the story. The spirit of the accuser lives in the friends who accuse Job, the blameless victim. Are you with me? That, that by chapter 22, Eliphaz has actually confused God and the accuser. Eliphaz has actually switched or mixed up the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the unholy spirit. Because he says God is accusing Job. But who's the accuser? The Satan, right? And, and, and so Eliphaz makes the mistake and actually switches or, or doesn't understand what, these, what the role of the Holy Spirit versus the unholy spirit. So I'd like to help you out today. How can you tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and the unholy spirit? The Holy Spirit is helper, guide, encouragement, okay? Or the Greek word paraclete, which literally means advocate, The Holy Spirit is a spirit of advocacy and help and direction and discernment and encouragement. The unholy spirit is a spirit of blame, shame, and accusation. Which is why I said Job exposes the satanic practice of blaming the victim. Because that's the the work of the unholy spirit, to blame, shame, and accuse. And so let let me be clear. The blame and shame are weapons forbidden to the Christian. Blame and shame are weapons forbidden 
to the Christian. Here's, here's why. I know I'm speaking forthrightly today. Thank you for graciously receiving it. It's, it's, a not, it's not an easy word to hear. But when we blame and accuse, we pretend to know more than we actually do. <laughs> Can we admit that, right? Uh, that when we, when we blame and when we accuse and we sh- when we shame, we pretend to know more than we actually know. And I would say that the last thing that people who are suffering need is a know-it-all. The last thing that suffering people need is a know-it-all. And, and again, when we, when we become uncomfortable with the tension or the mystery of suffering, if we're not able to hold that tension, then, then in an effort to diffuse the tension of that mystery, we'll either, in trying to explain away the suffering, we'll probably either end up misspeaking about God or blaming the victim. Um, I have been in too many scenarios when someone is suffering and a well-meaning person of faith tries to explain the suffering, but they end up blaming or accusing And while it is meant to bring comfort to the one who is suffering, in the end it only accomplishes to shine a bright light on their ignorance. (laughs) I've been in too many scenarios where well-meaning religious people tried to explain away suffering, but in their explanation end up blaming, shaming, or misspeaking about God. And while it is meant to be a comfort to the one suffering, it only serves to accomplish shining a bright light on their own ignorance. Because when we blame and we shame, we actually pretend to know more than we actually do. So, when we behold tragedy and seek someone to blame, we are doing the work of the accuser. But when we behold tragedy and seek to help and heal, we are doing the work of God. With me? That's, that is the, the boilerplate for this sermon. So if you get nothing else, I want you to get this, okay? When we behold tragedy and seek to accuse some, or find someone to blame, then we do the work of the accuser. But when we behold tragedy and seek to help and heal, then we are doing the work of God. I was hoping for some quiet amens at least. <laughs> In case you are feeling like I have just gone completely off the rails, uh, let's look at John chapter 9, and and I just want to reference it, I won't read it. But in John chapter 9, we have the story of uh, Jesus who heals a man uh, who is born blind. And upon approaching this blind man, the disciples uh, and Jesus encounter this man, and the disciples are quick to seek an explanation. This man is suffering and they want to know why. And so they actually asked Jesus a question. Who is to blame for this man's blindness? Was it his own sin or the sin of his parents? You, now, do you, already you are kind of recognizing the worldview of the disciples, okay? This man is suffering. Who is to blame? Is it him 
Or is it his parents? Because as soon as we find someone to blame, then we'll feel like we can have found an explanation for this. In other words, they're not even willing to sit with the mystery for a moment, right? Like they just, they, they happen upon a blind man. Who's to blame? <laughs> and what you'll find as you read it is Jesus refuses to answer their question on their own terms. He doesn't, Jesus does not blame or accuse or shame, but simply says, that he will display his glory through this man's blindness. Jesus then spits on the ground to make some mud, smears the mud on the man's eyes, and tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he does, the man is healed of his blindness. Jesus refuses to engage with their question and instead participates in help and healing. I, I think that this is so important, especially when you recognize like all the themes that Job is trying to speak to us about. That, that Jesus does not engage their, their blame game, their shame game, their accusations. He, he doesn't seek to answer or to explain, or he doesn't, try to, he doesn't go into some huge discourse, but rather Jesus simply moves to help and to healing. And he says there is suffering that is happening, and I'm not gonna try to find any answers. I'm gonna sit in the mystery of that suffering and move us toward help and healing. That that is the primary work of God. That God incarnate, God in flesh, does not try to explain away, but moves toward help and healing. So let me say the boilerplate again. When we behold tragedy and seek someone to blame, we are doing the work of the accuser. But when we behold tragedy and seek to help and heal, we are doing the work of God. Now this may sound simple, but the impulse to explain away suffering is so, so strong. I mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again. When someone gets ill, we do this a lot, particularly, specifically with cancer. When someone gets cancer, we don't know what, we want to know what did they eat, what did they do, or what did they did not do that caused them to have this, so that I can, not, so that I can prevent that, right? So that I can not get that, <laughs> okay? So we immediately look for explanations as to why. Now, obviously, there are some things we know that are cancer-causing. But by and large, the medical community says we don't know why this happens, right? And rather than sit in that mystery, we're so quick to say, oh, it was that, or it was that, it was that. I'm going to stay away from that. I'm not going to eat that. They shouldn't have eaten that. <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. Someone experiences homelessness and we are so quick to make assumptions about their behavior. Here's the difficulty and the nuance of it all. That sometimes when we're so quick to blame or, or, or label or, some, or, or et cetera, uh, you know, guess what? Sometimes you might, it might be right. Sometimes those, those, those accusations might be true. But the point is we don't move quickly to that. We don't jump there, we don't assume that. That's not the first place we're to go because blame and shame and accusation are weapons not given to the Christian. If I may speak even more boldly, someone seeks refuge in a country that's not their own 
and we're quick, quick to slap all sorts of labels on them. When Jesus' position toward immigrants and refugees is so crystal clear. Now let's turn it up to 11. <laughs> it's disingenuous to participate in a mission trip to South America and not support generous immigration policy. And I'm not telling you what policy to believe. Don't, don't oh, Pastor Andy's getting into politics again. Nope. I, believe what you want to believe. Hold it generously with a spirit of generosity. Because guess what? The groups of people that we usually are so quick to blame and shame and accuse are the vulnerable. It's almost always the vulnerable that we go so quickly and say, and we start to point fingers, and I promise, I'm telling you, church, that when we do that, we are not doing the work of the Holy Spirit who is pure light and love and gracious. We are doing the work of the Satan, the accuser. Because we go to South America on a mission trip, not as those who are superior seeking to help the inferior. If that is your position and you're interested in the mission trip this summer, do not go. If, you're, if you feel like you're going as one who is superior to help those who are inferior, we go as fellow sojourners in life seeking to participate in God's renewal of all things. That's why we go. We go as participants, as partners in what God is doing. All right, let's turn it up to 12. Um, I thought we would only get to 11, but here we are. So uh, <laughs> maybe you've seen or heard this one. A woman is victimized by a man, and someone will say, but what was she wearing? In five words, you have blamed the victim. In five words. Never even for a moment willing to sit with a quiet, non-anxious presence with those who are suffering. Never for a moment willing to sit in the mystery of suffering in our world. But just moving so quickly to, yeah, but what was she wearing? The only way, the only way that we can live without a spirit of accusation is to allow the Holy Spirit to so fill us up and so indwell our hearts that we move to a spirit of advocacy and help and encouragement. That's the only way. Because otherwise we will be so quickly given over uh, to accusation. And... Um, a word that modern Protestants aren't very comfortable with is the word mystics. Uh, and that's simply a word to describe the ability to see beyond what we can just see right here, right? Um, that when we can see the humanness of others, uh, then we're not so quick to blame. And so we need, we need more mystics in the Christian faith. Um, 
and, and I think it's something, I'm like so out of time, and I've already turned it up to 12. Um, <laughs> I don't know who said that, but thank you. Um, somebody's like, keep going. Uh, it, it's, it's really something that we, we used to have, that, that the church produced heroes of the faith, that, that kind of had that mystical eye. But in the last generation or two or three, the, church, the, the modern Protestant church has not produced any heroes of the faith. We've produced superstar pastors. We've produced models to go and do church. We, we've produced material, like we've produced all sorts of things except for heroes of the faith that we could look at and say that person was able to see the world in such a way that we're drawn to him or her. You with me? And so it really says something that over the last two or three generations, we don't have any heroes of the faith. We just have superstars. And it's because we, we've lost that, that mystical sense of our faith. Okay, I, I need to be done. Uh, to recap, <laughs> God is not in the business of accusation and blame. God is in the business of help and healing. And the book of Job is a wake-up call to us. Can we hold on to what God says about Job? Or will we be seduced into blaming the blameless? So my encouragement today is may we, through the strength of the spirit of advocacy that lives in us, refuse to cast blame and instead participate in the healing work of God in the world. Amen? Amen. Let me say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I have done my best to speak the truth today as I best understand it. Admitting, Lord, that there probably is so much to truth that I don't yet see clearly and don't understand. But God, I pray, but, I'm, but I am confident in this word this morning. And so I pray that you would solidify it in my own heart and in the hearts of those who are listening. Lord, help us to have a spirit of advocacy in our world. As easy it is to blame and to shame and to accuse, Lord, help us to know that these are things that are not becoming of the Spirit of Christ. Lord, would you so fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would embody the spirit of advocacy. God, so fill our hearts, so fill our minds, so fill our beings with your spirit that we may walk in your likeness. So God, be with, his, be with us in these closing moments of our service as we gather around the Lord's table, as we pray prayers, as we take a little bit of extra time this morning, maybe more than we're used to, Lord, would you speak to us? May your, may your Holy Spirit be active in this place, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.